Coming up on Dolph today, Rolex number one Jin Young Ko gets ready for her last chance at a major in 2022. What's on her mind on the final day of prep at the AIG Women's Open at Muirfield? Stay tuned to find out. Plus, we'll dig into the history of this iconic venue, the people, the players, the stories that make Muirfield one of the jewels of Scotland, the United Kingdom, and beyond. And over on the PGA Tour, the regular season ends this week in Greensboro at the Wyndham. Players looking for birdies, for momentum, for wins, and for a precious spot in the playoffs. Time to step up and bring your best on Golf Today. Golf Today, brought to you by PointsBet. Golf Today on Hump Day, Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch of Golf Week Magazine. Yes, a major championship is upon us, the final one of the year. I'm, I'm nervous. Like, I know the players are maybe anxious, eager, excited, you know, you know choose your word. But for me, I'm... I'm nervous for them. I'm nervous watching the best players chase these big trophies. And that's just on Wednesday. For most of us, the pressure actually diminishes professionally the closer <laughs> you get to the weekend. But that's the opposite in golf, and it's particularly the opposite this week. You know, it's the last opportunity for the best women in the world to put a stamp on the year with a major championship. And then over in the PGA Tour, it's the last chance saloon with guys trying to make their way into the FedEx Cup playoffs. And in a typical year, only three people mm. on average move in or out of the top 125 at the Wyndham every year. So it doesn't matter what direction you look, there's a lot at stake. Love this time of year, love the summertime. Yes, indeed, the final major of 2022 is upon us. The world's best take on Muirfield for the AIG Women's Open. Now this event became affiliated with the LPGA in 1994, elevated to major status in 2001. Muirfield is hosting the tournament for the first time. And earlier today, the chief executive of the RNA with a big announcement regarding this week's purse. This year, at the AIG's Women's Open, the players will be competing for $7.3 million, which is an increase of 26% on last year, and also sees the total investment in the prize fund increase by just over $4 million, or 125%, since the RNA and AIG began our partnership in 2019. But as I've said on a number of occasions, progress in prize funds needs to be commercially sustainable. We're delighted that many of our Open patrons now also support the AIG Women's Open, but we need to unlock new supporters to make sure women's golf is financially viable. This week is the showpiece of the RNA's commitment to women's golf, but it goes much further than just this one week. It's woven into all we do. We need to increase the number of women and girls not only playing golf, but we also need to create opportunities for women in leadership. Martin Slumbers with the RNA. How about that news, the increased purse, but also really looking forward, not resting on his laurels, saying this isn't just about this week and this purse. It's about increased opportunities for women, not just inside the ropes, but in the boardrooms as well. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting to see organizations not only walk the walk since we've heard so many years of platitudes about growing the game and, and increasing opportunities for women and girls in the game and increasing the prize money. But you also need a sponsor who's willing to back up the, right. the positive thoughts and, and the kind words. And AIG has done that. And it's interesting to see how this trend is continuing in women's professional golf, particularly in the five major championships over the last few years. If you go back five years, the, the Women's Open played for a purse of $3.25 million. Now, Martin Slumbers is basically saying there's a, a $4 million increase uh, to where we are at this year, and that's reflected in all the other major championships as well. It's almost $20 million difference in collective prize money between the five majors now in 2022 versus what it was just five years ago. That's a pretty enormous increase. How important is the symbolism here as well? It's the dollars and cents for sure, but it's also the fact that young girls thinking about this profession think they can maybe make a life out of this. We know the challenges that the women's game faces compared to the men's game. It's very different dollars that we're talking about, but it's not just the dollars. It's also the inspiration and the symbolism as, as well that are telling these young girls that you matter in this game. Yeah, it goes to me beyond the, the very idea of whether or not you think you can make a living in it, because we see a lot of sports and a lot of people even in golf who 
can't actually make a living, but it doesn't deter them from the pursuit right. of the dream. And the symbolism is important as well. But to me, it's the respect that, that, that's really the issue here. Mm. In every, it doesn't matter what your job is. Money has really become a symbol of the respect that you're accorded. And if somebody, if an organisation that is paying one group of people a multiple of what they're paying another group of people, yeah. well, then that implies a certain lack of respect or lack of equity in there. And you're seeing that diminish further and further in the women's game as each year rolls on. Obviously, the USGA set that benchmark for the US Women's Open with a $10 million purse. They're pushing this year. each other a little bit, the USGA, the RNA, Chevron, you know, putting their skin in the game for the LPGA as well. Yeah, and it's, it really is testing the theory that a rising tide mm. lifts all boats. And there was a point where Evian was the, the leader in yes. that category. And, but now it's, it's an arms race, and it's an arms race in a good sense because the best players in the world are going to benefit from it. Yeah, big news from the RNA. Speaking of the best players, the headliner this week, of course, world number one, Jin Young Ko, looking for her first major since 2019. She has just one win this season, which came back in her first start of the year at the HSBC Women's World Championship back in March. So in total, she has amassed five top 10 finishes on the year, but taking a closer look, she's cooled off of late. She does have four top five finishes, but as you'll see, they all came back in her first eight starts, none in her last four starts. In fact, her scoring average, strokes gained tee to green, strokes gained putting, not as good as the previous eight starts. And earlier today, Jin Young Ko met the press. I heard a lot of things to do in real field this, this course, and I really wanted to play this golf course. I heard it's an amazing place, and I can't wait to play this course. And I practiced on Monday and Tuesday program, and yeah, it was really cool. And weather was such a big windy yesterday, but it was really nice. Do you enjoy being world number one, and what does that mean to you? How do you cope with that? Well, when I was really younger, and I really wanted to be world ranking number one, but yeah, so I I make it, and I've been world ranking number one almost three years, over three years, is can't believe it. And I I did a lot of wins last last year, and I want to get more wins this year, or hopefully future in my future. So it's a lot of little bit of, I have a little bit of pressure, but it's, it's fine. And because this is my dreams when I was younger, so yeah. You're playing with Minji Lee and Nelly Corder in rounds one and two. How much are you looking forward to playing with those? <laughs> yeah, um, I know it, I got the mail and I checked the pairing and then I said, oh, it's cool. And yeah, they are a really good player in this tour. So I really, uh, if I'm if I playing with them, I got a lot of things like learning from them. So I really want, I really like to play with them. And Nelly and Minji is, they are like, has good year right now. So, but yeah. It's really cool, really nice player, and I want to beat them. Oh, it is really cool. Yes, she does want to beat them. This marquee group absolutely stacked. World number one, Jin Young Ko, alongside world number two and U.S. Women's Open champ, Min Ji Lee, as well as the world number three Olympic gold medalist, Nelly Korda. They tee off tomorrow, 7.38 a.m. Eastern time over on USA. So state your case. My friend, of the three, this power grouping, you know, who's going to emerge victorious? There's a danger in these marquee groups, and we've seen it occasionally where people rise to the challenge. They're driven by playing against the best players in the world. But we've also seen examples of it where, where guys seem to get caught up in the theatre or circus sure. around these marquee groups and maybe lose a little bit of focus on the task at hand. It's going to be interesting to see what happens tomorrow. To me, it's pretty clear cut here. If you look at Jin Young Ko, she doesn't have a lot of confidence. We heard her last week talk at length about how little faith she has in her putting. She doesn't have a lot of form. I mean, she's only had two top tens in her last six starts. She was only out of the top ten twice in the previous 13 starts. Right. 
And she's only played three women's British Opens in the last seven years. She's had some good finishes. Second and a third, a, yeah. Not a ton of experience. Okay. You look at Nellie Corda, her results have been really solid since she made her comeback from her blood clot layoff. She probably is a little questionable on the confidence front right now. Fair. Has a little more experience than Jin Yonko. Then you look at Minji Lee. She's Obviously, she's won the Cognizant Founders Cup. She won the US Women's Open. She's second in the PGA. The last four years, she hasn't been worse than 11th right. in the Women's British Open. So she's got form. She's got confidence. And she's got the experience. And to me, she's the clear-cut favorite to emerge from that group. It's been a remarkable season for her, a season of found length off the tee. You're an apt comparison to Matthew Fitzpatrick on the PGA Tour. I, I can understand you thinking Minji Lee, but this is my player right here. You're looking at her. It's the world number one. It's Jin Young-Ko, in my opinion, because of the fact that Nelly and Minji are in the same group. I think that when you are clearly one of the best in the world, you need to see players who will push you. I think we saw it last year, CME Group Tour Championship. Yeah. Jin Young-Ko hit her final 63 greens in regulation with Nelly Korda in the first two days, Thursday and Friday. I think the fact that Nelly is going to be side-by-side side will stir something inside competitively for the Rolex number one in Jin Young-Ko. She knows the pressure is on her, but we're not going to put any more pressure on Jin Young-Ko than she puts on herself. It's time to perform. No major since 2019. I think the appearance of Minji Lee and Nelly Korter will only benefit Jin Young-Ko this You think week. she needs to be close to the throats that she wants to step on? I think on? so. I think it's a little bit of McEnroe Borg. Yeah. I really do. John Does McEnroe that account for her flatness, then? The, the oh, Nelly's layoff, the idea that she wasn't driven she, by the rivalry we thought we were getting? She could not have been immune to that storyline last year. In fact, she talked about, you know, she won Player of the Year on the LPGA, but she said, you know what? Nelly won the Olympic gold, and she also won a major championship. I did not. So I think she knows that that was the storyline last year, and now that she sees Nelly face-to-face, -face, can only have her at full attention come Thursday morning. Yeah, she could focus on Nelly and end up with Minji Lee sailing off <laughs> That's into the a distance. good point. I, to me, what mitigates against Jin Young-Ko is the very clearly stated lack of confidence in her putting. And Lynx courses are not generally the kind of places where you go to find your putting, because very often a, a good approach shot is 30 feet away from the hole. So if you're lacking a little confidence in your putting, it's not really the kind of golf that you're likely to find it yeah. that much, I think. But she's, I, a golf going savant. she's a golf savant at Muirfield. I think the matchup will be very, very good for the Rolex number one. And a reminder, you can watch first round coverage of the AIG Women's Open tomorrow, 6 a.m. Eastern, over on USA. There's Nelly right there. She's looking for her second major championship. All get started tomorrow. So stay with us. Big week on the PGA Tour as well. Regular season wraps up in North Carolina, Greensboro specifically. We'll hear from Will Zalatoris next. He's come close to a victory this season, but has yet to get the job done. Where's his confidence level? That's next on Golf Today. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed.
Karen Stubble shot one of the greatest final rounds in women's open history back in 2004 at Sunningdale. She's on the ground this week at Muirfield and she's going to join us to relive those glory days and to talk about who might join her in having their name engraved on the trophy. Stay with us on Golf Today. Golf Today. Brought to you by PointsBet. Golf Today continues on this Wednesday. Damon Ack alongside Eamon Lynch, Golf Week Magazine columnist extraordinaire. The big news of the day, Chief Executive of the RNA, Martin Slumbers, announcing a price increase for the purse, $7.3 million, some 26% greater than one year ago. We continue to see great strides in this game. We do, and I, I'm kind of nervous about potentially mentioning it when we talk to Karen Stupples, who won the Open, 18 years ago in 2004. <laughs> Sunningdale, the, the purse that year was $1.5 million. Karen, for her victory, earned $290,000. That's less than what fifth place is going to pay this week. At How Muirfield. about that? How important in that we continue to see this growth? I mean, these women are working hard to be the best players in the world. And when you look at particularly an event like the, the Women's Open, which requires a lot of extra travel expenses, and because the LPGA Tour tends to be fairly global, enterprise. There's a lot of travel involved to exotic climbs there. And there are weeks when players can comfortably make a cut and still lose money yeah. out there. And that should not be the situation mm. at the elite level of women's golf. And th the money is the respect. And what we've seen now is an almost $20 million increase over the last five years collectively between the five major championships in golf, four of which now have a first prize check of over $1 million. The top one, of course, is the $1.8 million paid out by the US Women's Open, but there's more than a million dollars being handed to someone on Sunday who will have earned that money. Love it. It was a very special week at the old course for the men. I imagine it'll be very special this week for the women at Muirfield. So let's take a look at some of the tea times. Once again, Thursday morning, 6 a.m. coverage begins on USA. You see NB Park, seven-time major champ. Brooke Henderson coming off her second Major Lexi just looking for some form. She's been close, but has not won for now three years. Jin Young Ko, the world number one. Nellie Korda, number three. Minji Lee, U.S. Women's Open champ. How about that group at 7.38 a.m.? Let's flash back now. 2004 AIG Women's Open at Sunningdale. She looks familiar. Karen Stuffel started her final round with an eagle. You did okay, and she says she wanted to start. That's the way you want to start it, but then the next hole, also a par five. Oh, wait, she's not gonna, you're not gonna get two. The most memorable start in major championship history. Albatross, double eagle, call it what you want, propelled her to a final round, 64. She went on to win by an impressive five shots after her fantastic final round. Also joining an illustrious list of women's major champs representing England. You see Dame Laura Davies. Here's Karen Stupples, Allison Nicholas, and Georgia. Sweet Georgia. In time now for a past champ chat as we welcome in our own colleague, Karen Stupples. Stupples, it's great to see you. First of all, you're, you're in Scotland. You've won this great championship. What's this week just like for you in general? It's always fabulous uh, for me to come back to the, the AIG Women's Open because obviously it brings back a lot of memories for me. There are so many people that I am familiar with uh, surrounding the, the championship itself. And uh, it, it's just to know that my name is on the trophy. It's always, it's always very cool because I still have to pitch myself because I'm really, you know, there are times that I don't believe it actually happened, but it really did because my name's on that trophy. <laughs> Karen, you shot 64 in the final round at Sonny Neal to win back in 2004. Was that the greatest round of your career? I think so. I mean, it has to be because um, you know that you go into the final round, you know you have a chance to win a major championship, to win the Women's Open, the one that was so close to my heart growing up, the one that I was, you know, always dreamt about winning. And to have an opportunity and to be able to seal the deal uh, when the pressure is the greatest, knowing that you're on top of your game and being able to produce the goods when it really matters was, was pretty special. 
And I don't think I, though, had any idea that I was going to start the way I did as quickly as I did with the, with the Eagle Albatross start. And then to be able to hold it together throughout the whole round, because it would have been very easy uh, for things to have fallen apart and, and other people caught me. But uh, that wasn't to be. I finished strong and I had the trophy in my hands. And to be honest with you, the, the biggest thing for me was how happy I was to be able to give something back to my parents after everything they had sacrificed for me to achieve. I was able to, to, to show them the, the open trophy. You mentioned that start, that Eagle Albatross. Uh, what was your mindset on the first tee? Because I read a story, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you were out there to actually bird, or sort of eagle that very first hole. Your mindset was yeah. to be aggressive right from jump. It, it was very true. Um, my, my husband at the time, Bobby, and he was my caddy. I asked him where the hole locations were, and he said, uh, this golf course is out there for a low number. You, sh you should go out and get it. So I'm like, okay, I really need to get off to a fast start. Being a par five, par five star, I knew that the other players were most likely going to birdie both of those two. But I thought if I could at least eagle one of them, um, that, then I could draw level with them because they, the, the leaders were, were a shot ahead of me at the time. So I figured that I could at least draw level with them. And then, then it was fair game from that point on. Um, so, yeah, so I knew I wanted an eagle, but I wasn't expecting the albatross. <laughs> Karen, you mentioned giving something back to your parents. You know, you didn't have the straightest route from college golf into the pro ranks. At one point, you were working as a waitress back in England after yeah. college. What happened to set you on the road that ended with that <laughs> victory at Sunningdale? Well, anyway, I was a really lucky, a lucky person. Um, I was working at a golf course in Folkestone called, called Etching Hill, and I was waiting tables, and uh, some regular clients would come in and sit at my tables all the time. Uh, Keith and Sue Rawlings, uh, they, they'd been out playing tennis and then they would come in and, and have dinner at the golf club afterwards. And uh, one day he happened to ask me, why haven't you turned pro yet? And I said, well, I haven't, you know, I'm trying to save up enough money to do so. Uh, just cut a long story short, he basically said to me, look, I've been really lucky in my life. I really think you deserve a break. Write me out a budget for what you need uh, to, to turn pro and, and we'll help you out. So, so that night I... I wrote the budget out, went up to went to his office the next day, and he said, this is great. We'll help you out. So um, here I am. I mean, I, I went through Q school, got my card the first time. Um, there was a few little bumps in the road along the way, but ultimately um, I, I am here where I am today because of him and his wife, because of Keith and Sue Rawlings and what they did for me at the start because they believed in me and they thought I deserved a chance. It was uh, very special. And, and coincidentally, Keith and Sue were there uh, watching me win, so which was really nice too. Wow, so much of life is about sliding doors. What was your backup plan had <laughs> golf not worked out? <laughs> well, everybody always asked me what I would have done. I, I think <laughs> at the time, my backup plan was I was going to join the police um, because I felt like I needed a career that, uh, that, that was going to be different, something that was ever-changing, that you weren't really sure what was going to fall on your feet any given day, and I, I thought the police was going to be where I was going to end up, but... Um, that would have been that would have been pretty cool, too. Well, the police's loss is our gain, Karen. <laughs> you know, Sunningdale probably get my vote as the best course in all of England. And now we're talking about the Open being played at Muirfield for the first time, possibly mm. the best course in all of Scotland, if if not the world. When you were yeah. playing, how much were you able to separate the stature of the venue versus how you intended to play it as a competitor? Did you pay any attention to the noise around where you were playing? It's very interesting you ask that because um, up until the recently, St Andrews to me was just a golf course that I went to to play a, a championship on. It was it was just a golf course because I was looking to get from point A to point B in as few shots as I possibly could, and I, so I was able to to create that separation really easily. Now, as I as I am more into golf courses and, and commentary, I really see the value in the design and the layouts and the history of the places. But when I played, it was very much, okay, how can I get the ball in the hole to create the result that I want? Um, I was very single-minded. I was very driven. And, uh, and I think sometimes I wish I had spent more time to smell the roses and to see the course for what it was. Um, but it was, for me, just point A to point B. But this place, Muirfield, is uh, quite simply stunning. Speaking of being driven, Jin Young-Ko, Rolex number one, seems very driven. She's very tough on herself, someone with 13 wins already, a couple of major championships, but she sure does seem to put a lot of pressure on her own shoulders. What do you make of her recent struggles relative to how she's typically played on the LPGA? 
I, I think when she puts the pressure on her shoulders, I think a lot of what we hear her saying is, is what people expect her to say, particularly from her native country of Korea. They expect her to be hard on herself because that's what the, the, most of the, the population are. They're all very hard on themselves when it comes to performance and, and achieving. Um, for her, she knows that she's not playing quite as well as she has done. It, and it's coming in the ball striking category. She's not hitting as many greens and she's not hitting it quite as close as she has done in the past year. Um, that's not to say that she can't get that back on track. She knows where she needs to go and, and, and in terms of uh, ball striking. But that being said, there are other players that are all playing well and it's so hard to go back to back years playing that well. And uh, I think everybody's expectations of her are, are pretty high. What was the reaction on the ground today, Karen, when the RNA announced the prize fund has gone up to $7.3 million, which I think is about 26% increase on what it was last year? Uh, I, I think, in general, everybody is still pinching themselves that we're in this, this fabulous era where, where you've got major corporations and the, the golf governing bodies kind of really up in their game. You know, they, for the longest time, they've... They've, uh, they've talked the talk about how much they value women and how much they want to grow the game with, 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 you know, on the women's side of things. And now they're actually walking the walk too. They're, they're putting the money into these championships to, to help promote because once you start promoting the women's game in this, in this fashion, what, what you see is not only do the players feel the value, but the people that work for these corporations and these companies feel valued as well because they, they see what they're doing for, for women within this industry. And, and that kind of trickles down to, to the little girls that are watching, that they, that they can look up and they can dream that maybe this is something I can do as well. And, and I feel like everybody is very proud that, that this is the, the era that, that we're living in now, that, that there are these companies wanting to, wanting to up the ante and uh, to increase the price funds. I wasn't sure I'd ever see the day. I still pinch myself when I look at the, the purse breakdowns and think about how much money that, that's been offered. And uh, I'm very proud that, to be part of, of this in some way given that I just commentate on it now. Long may it continue. All right, Karen, we're going to put the, you to the test, <laughs> your knowledge of your victory with this edition of Quiz the Champ. So we're about to find out how much you've been diminished by the wine that we've shared over the years <laughs> in terms of your I'm memory. Lost. The first question should be fairly simple for you. By how many strokes did you trail entering the final round at Sunningdale in 2004? I was one shot back. He is correct. I mean, it's that's the easy one. Too easy. Too easy. <laughs> Up the ante a little bit for her. All right. Okay. Topic number two. What was your winning score in 2004? I was 19 under par. Gee, I didn't diminish her as much as I thought I had. How was the wine? Was the wine <laughs> really? was good quality wine? It was cheap swill was I was drinking. Swill. I was paying okay. for it. And then I here's the last one, Karen, for well. you. <laughs> okay. Three other AIG Women's Open cha champions won the title at Sunningdale, other than you. Who were they? Jia uh, Xin. And... Uh, oh, we've got know. her. We've got her. <laughs> two more. Uh, two more. Uh, two all-time greats. Mm, that's a good hint. Oh, Laura Davies? Oh, no. no. Uh-uh. We uh, have... I, well, go on, hit me with it. I'm done. All I'm right. tapping out. Go ahead, Eamon. <laughs> we have Sari Pack and Carrie of Webb. Course. So you're in pretty darn good of company course. there, Karen. Of course. Uh, you, you wouldn't have thought that I would have got G.A. Shin. I should have got Carrie Webb and Sari <laughs> Pack for sure. It was that extra glass of wine oh. back in the day. That's what did it. It really was. Maybe I've been sneaky having a couple before I came on. Maybe that's trouble. <laughs> it's like 5 o'clock somewhere. Stubbs, have a great week. I know how much this week means to you. Thanks so much for a few minutes. We'll talk to you down the road. Coming up, we have some breaking news regarding the PGA Tour and the Live Golf Series. It might affect the FedEx Cup playoffs. That is coming up after the break. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, 
both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We have some breaking news to tell you on this Wednesday regarding the PGA Tour. According to the Wall Street Journal, Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau, and nine other live golf players have filed an antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour. The suit challenges the suspensions the PGA Tour has already implemented, not allowing the live golfers to play in PGA Tour events, as well as the FedEx Cup playoffs. For more, we are now joined by Rex Hoggard. Rex, what do we know right now? Uh, this lawsuit was filed just this morning in U.S. District Court in Northern California. We know that, as you pointed out, it's 11 players. I guess the most interesting thing that jumps off the page is that not all 11 players are even qualified to play in the playoffs. You mentioned Two of the players that you mentioned, Phil Mickelson and Bryson DeChambeau, are currently outside the top 125. Now, this lawsuit is more than 100 pages long, so I'm still trying to file through it and digest it completely, but it seems as if Liv Goff and these players are claiming that because they have been suspended, they had been suspended during the regular season, that they never even got the opportunity to compete in these playoffs. Now, what they're going after here, it's a long-term lawsuit, but in the immediacy of right now, they're trying to get a temporary restraining order that would allow them to play in the playoffs starting next week. Rex, we saw the same thing play out at the Genesis Scottish Open when Ian Poulter and three other players made their mm -hmm. way into the field there based on seeking an injunction. That was held in, in private arbitration rather than in a public courtroom. Only three of these 11 players are seeking to force their way into the playoffs that they've been told by the PGA Tour that they will not be eligible to compete in. What do you think the reaction is likely to be among players when they hear this news and they see live guys attempting to legally force their way into the field? I think the reaction is already out there, Eamon, to be honest with you. If you listen to Davis Love's press conference yesterday from the Wyndham Championship, this was very personal. It was very emotional for him, and he put it on the line. He actually referenced something that he called a nuclear option as far as if these players are allowed to compete in the playoffs. I think he put it, have their cake and eat it too, be able to play both tours, that that should actually spark something among the players who did remain loyal to the PGA Tour and get them to push back and maybe get them to, to maybe boycott events, and we'd never want it to get to that, but you get an idea of how emotional that is. I actually spoke with Ryan Palmer this morning about this eventuality, if they are allowed to compete in the playoffs. And there's a level of anger there, that this goes beyond sort of the normal niceties that we've seen on this particular subject up, to, up until now, really. This gets to the heart of they're impacting someone else's ability to make a living. living. And I think you're going to see this get more and more personal. Rex, you mentioned the players. How about the tour itself? And how important is it that it protects the players who have been loyal to the PGA Tour, that their place in the FedEx Cup, in the playoffs, is not jeopardized by the potential of additional players, live golf players, being in the playoffs. Well, go back to last week, Damon, and the PGA Tour actually announced among to their players in a memo from Commissioner Jay Monahan that they were coming up with two separate lists. It's the normal FedEx Cup points list that we're kind of focused on right now going into this last regular season event. And then there's something called the eligibility points list. And essentially what this did is removed those players who had been indefinitely suspended for playing the Live Golf events. And you almost get the idea, and I've spoken with some folks at the tour, that they were preparing for this eventuality. If these players are allowed to compete in the playoffs, you have to find a way to separate them out. And yet you still have to be able to, to award them points. You still have to be allow them to compete. So they're preparing for this. I'm sure it's something that they would much rather not have to deal with starting next week in Memphis at the first playoff event. Rex, almost to a man among those who've left for Live Golf, we've heard them say that part of the decision is playing less golf, spending more time at home with their families. Mm -hmm. And now we have them litigating over the right to play, essentially, more golf and spend more time away from their families. What do these players potentially gain from continuing to have access to the PGA Tour, even if they're not particularly welcome? I think then the, the quickest answer to that would be world ranking points, which, of course, has become a hot topic because 
they just requested to be considered for world ranking points at the Open Championship. I'm talking about Liv Goff, and that's going to be a process that's, from what I've been told, at least going to be a year, if not longer, before that's even processed through, and if they may or may not be allowed to get points. So in the short term, they would need to compete for world ranking points, which would keep them inside the top 50, inside those magic numbers, to be able to ultimately play in the major championships, which is where this is going to end up. I think you're right when you hear players talking about the Liv players saying that they want to play less, and, and yet... You have players, I think Patrick Reed announced just this week, that he's going to go compete in two Asian Tour events in the interim between the Live Golf events that have already been played and those that will be played later this fall. So there is a disconnect there, and it goes all the way to what they're trying to accomplish. They're trying to maintain the relevancy as far from a competitive standpoint. They need to be relevant inside that top 50 to be able to maintain that relevance as a top 100, I mean top 50 in a major championship player. Rex, what about the news that Phil Mickelson was, in fact, suspended? What should we know? It is interesting because this goes back to the cat and mouse game that he had been talking about for quite some time. He had sort of alluded to it, and the PGA Tour had denied it. Now, the PGA Tour has, as a matter of course and as a matter of policy, never announced suspensions until recently with the live golf players, so that would be something new. But that is an interesting element of this lawsuit, knowing that he had been suspended. And this goes to some conversations that I had with players and officials really early, I mean, late last year, that the reason this was coming to a head so much, it wasn't so much that Live Golf was on the horizon and was the threat that we now know it to be. It was that I was told that there was top players out on PGA Tour ranges recruiting other players, and that was something the Tour simply couldn't allow to happen at their own events. And now in this particular case, it seems as if Phil Mickelson was probably one of those players. Rex Hoggett reporting on this antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour. Amy Lynch, we've been covering this story now for several months. Your reaction to this development? It's interesting that they waited so long to file this lawsuit, having been suspended quite some time ago, because I think there's a desire to create a sense of emergency that they need immediate injunctive relief in the courts that they could have applied for some weeks ago. And I talked this morning to Professor Jody Balsam, who's Professor of Sports Law at Brooklyn Law School, and there's a distinction between two legal cases here. There's the broader antitrust case that will be fought out perhaps over years, uh, which is what most of these golfers have filed onto. Only three of the, the golfers here, Matt Jones, Hudson Swafford, and Taylor Gooch, have signed on seeking injunctive relief to play in the FedEx Cup playoffs next week. And there are two key prongs to getting injunctive relief. One is a substantial likelihood that you could win your antitrust case on the merits. That's a low bar to reach. The, the mere fact that you have merits to a case to be argued down the road, the, the courts have tended to be sympathetic to individual athletes who are litigating eligibility rules. So that's one criteria on which they might actually succeed in getting that injunction. The other one's a little more complicated. These players would have to prove irreparable harm being done to them that cannot be repaired by money damages. Mm. Now, the, the tour has made clear, even by drawing up this alternate list of eligible players, that it intends to pay out what these players earned in the FedEx Cups, just not letting them compete in the playoffs because they're under suspension. And that becomes a much more complicated case to argue for these guys because what is the damage being done to them other than the, the, the absence of money? Uh, is it the, the glory that they think mm. they would cover themselves in by playing in these events? So it's, a lot of injunctive relief cases basically come down to the look of the draw in terms of the judge mm. that you get and how they're minded to, to vote on these things. But generally speaking, the, the bar threshold to which players have to reach to get an injunction is a lot lower than the threshold that would be required mm. to win any broader antitrust case down the road. These are extremely complex situations. Every antitrust lawsuit is not the same as one that preceded. I was struck by what Rex said about the potential now for anger. It seems like the niceties that we've heard over the last several months, you know, well, I'm still friends with so-and-so. Do you think that that could change now as we now have lawsuits uh, against the PGA Tour? You're already seeing that change. Now, when you have Davis Love, who is the ultimate kind of middle-of-the-road, yes, non-radical guy on yes. the PGA Tour calling for potential boycotts, which these players would then turn around and allege that the PGA Tour has put Davis Love up to that and it's somehow right. some cabal acting against them, which is utter nonsense. I'm not sure how any such boycott would actually be mm. sustainable anyway. 
But you're going to see a lot more resentment now because it's the PGA Tour members who are not with Liv. I've seen these guys go pick up their checks. Now they're coming back saying, I've got my money. Right. I'm now coming for yours. That's how they're going to interpret it. Yeah. So the niceties are going to be gone. No doubt. All right, Eamon, earlier today, before the news broke that the lawsuit was filed against the PGA Tour, our Kira K. Dixon asked a number of players about the prospects of litigation. Kira joins us once again from Greensboro. Well, Damon was able to speak with several players on their reaction to the prospect of this news, and here is what they had to say. I think it's something that a lot of guys probably saw coming or, you know, thought might happen, but when those guys went to that tour, they knew the, the consequences of, of making that decision. Now, I don't fault anybody that, that did it. Everybody has their own reasons, but if you're going to try and double dip or, or do both, then I think that's where guys, a lot of guys have an issue because, um, you know, going before anybody went, everybody knew sort of what the consequences would be if you went and that being you wouldn't be able to play on the PGA Tour again. And um, now that they're trying to do that is kind of, it doesn't, doesn't kind of rubs me the wrong way, but, um, you know, I, we'll see how it plays out, I guess. You mentioned it rubs you the wrong way. What are kind of the emotions that come up with this situation of, you know, them going over and then also now wanting to play in the FedEx Cup playoffs? Well, it just feels like a quick cash grab for those guys, which, again, like, if that's if that's what the motivation is, then I don't fault anybody for doing that. But uh, when you have the, you know, these lawsuits and stuff like that, the money that's being used to fight those lawsuits and, and to support those cases, I guess, are coming out of our pockets, the guys that have stuck with the tour, a tour that has done so much good for so many guys out here. A lot of those guys that have built a name for themselves is coming from playing the PGA Tour. And um, it's just, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't, I know not everybody shares my perspective, I guess, but I just, I see all the good that, that comes from playing out here and all that's been given to us and how fortunate we are to, to be able to do what we do and um, don't, don't want to take that for granted. If it is successful, what do you think it will be like to tee it up in a PGA Tour field with them once again? That's that's a great question. I don't I don't really know. I think there will be some. I don't think I don't know if there'll be hostility, but I I think there will be some bridges that have been broken and some guys that, you know, will obviously not not like that, not appreciate that, and um, I think it'll be very very interesting if it if it does happen. But we'll see. It's an interesting time because. You know, they're going to have to play their 14 events, and if they want to play over here, they're going to have to play 15. So they're going to play 29 times, and their mantra that they've basically come out with is that, you know, we want to play less golf. And so, you know, we'll see where the majors go with this. And obviously I know this is more pertaining to the playoffs, but I'm looking a little bit more long-term. Playing 29 times is, is a lot. And on top of that, if only 15 of them count towards uh, official World Golf rankings, your minimum d divisor is 40 over a two-year span, so if you play your 15, let's say, you're, it's pretty hard to be in the top 50 if you're going to play 30 events and it's divided by 40. And so, you know, the part to me that I feel is a little bit, um, is a little frustrating, I guess, is the fact that obviously they made their choice to go over there. They're playing a direct competing tour, and they want to come back over here and play. And... You know, I understand that their argument is, hey, we're independent contractors, but what they're doing going over there is detrimental to our tour. So you can't have it both ways. And so we'll see what happens. You know, I think, um, you know, if they're allowed to play, I'd like to see what they did with the Scottish where they put them in their own crew. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing them be in their own foursome maybe at the end of the waves. But, um, you know, it's a definitely a, it's a strange time, but, you know, that's kind of – the gist of my feelings towards it is, you know, we're over here. We've been grinding all year. We've been doing everything to obviously make our tour better and, and be the best we possibly can be, and they're doing something detrimental. So, um, you know, if they get their way, that's fine. But um, I think a lot of us out here have the exact same stance that I have. If the injunction were to be successful and they were at these events, what do you think the response would be from players just running into them, seeing them out and about on the same premises? Yeah, you know, I think it'd be frustrating for sure just because, you know, we've, you know, we've spent our entire year out here and we've given our hearts out to the PGA Tour. We've been busting our tail to win out here. And, you know, like I said before, this is the best tour on earth and um, they're obviously doing something that's detrimental to our tour. And so, um, 
I think a lot of guys would be pretty frustrated if they're allowed to do both. Um, but, you know, I know Davis Love has some uh, had some comments about it, and I definitely I, I share the same sentiment. But uh, getting any of the guys out here, let alone get 100, 100 guys to do the same thing, we could be voting on something that we all care about. It's kind of hard to get 100 guys to, to go up against it. But I think deep down all of us share the same opinion that um, you can't have it both ways. I think it's a difficult situation. I feel like, you know, they, they've had their chance to, to go. Obviously, they didn't like something about our tour, so they went to a different tour, and now they're trying to fight to come back to our tour. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. If it is successful and you see them around, um, what would be your kind of emotional reaction towards them? I, I really don't have a lot of hard feelings against them. I feel like they should just be content with the decision they made and, and stick to where they've moved to. Um, you know, I hung out with Hudson Swafford last week a lot. We're still good friends. We have difference of opinions, and that's a lot about life. Why? Why do they need to come play the PGA Tour? Um, they've made a decision to, to go play the Live Tour. They made a decision to not follow the rules of the PGA Tour. They've signed multi-million dollar contracts. They're playing for a lot of money. Um, every one of them has said that they want to play less golf, and so now they're going to play more golf by playing the PGA Tour. They want to spend more time with their family. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, you know, the question I keep, you know, asking myself and, you know, sure I should ask them and maybe the media should ask them is what is their uh, vision of supporting the PGA Tour? Um, they've talked about that they do want to be on the PGA Tour. Some of them have. You know, they still want to support the PGA Tour. But what is that vision? Um, the vision is not playing 15 events minimum on a year. For the P, uh, the PGA Tour, because that's 29 events. I'd go against what they said earlier. They want to play less. Um, their vision is cherry picking what events they want to play in on the PGA Tour. Obviously, those would be the Invitationals, players, uh, the higher world ranking events, and the bigger purses events on the PGA Tour. Um, and that's not supporting the PGA Tour. That's getting sponsor exemptions into to these events. So um, it's frustrating. Uh, they made a decision to to leave the PGA Tour, and they should go. You know, you know, follow their employer. Um, I know there's a lot of guys that are a lot more uh, angry about it and frustrated about it than me. Uh, you know, we've heard about it. You know, this could come down, but just this week, just talking to a handful and hearing some of the conversation in the locker room and dining area, a lot of guys are not very happy. Well, Damon, as you can tell, there's still so much to sort through, and there is a complete range of emotions. We're still waiting on a response from the PGA Tour, so I will continue to track this story here on the ground at the Wyndham Championship. Kira, we're on the eve of the regular season finale on the PGA Tour, a hugely important week for a lot of players. What's the mood at Sedgefield? Well, it's tense. It's definitely tense, Damon, and I've seen a lot of players, as this news has come out, pull out their phones, they're reading the article, they're stopping their practice to talk to each other. And a few players have told me that this is just a distraction for them. Um, they'd really like to focus on their golf, but it's really hard to do that when they feel like they are kind of fighting for their livelihoods. So they are hoping that they can put that news aside as soon as they put tees in the ground on Thursday. But it certainly is something that's hard to do when they feel like uh, they are they and their livelihood are having this uh, this attack. Kira K. Dixon with some player reaction from Greensboro, North Carolina. And, Eamon, I want to read you this quote from uh, Professor Gabe Feldman, the professor at Sports Law at Tulane University in the Wall Street Journal. These cases are notoriously difficult to predict because all antitrust cases are notoriously difficult to predict, and they're even more difficult in the sports context. So I want to ask you, why do you think this was filed now and where it was filed? It was filed in Northern California for a very specific reason, I think. That's where the Alston NCAA case was initially litigated in terms of what compensation athletes, student athletes, are entitled to. And that completely upended the world of college sports. So that's clearly a circuit that's favorable to the plaintiff and to the individual athlete in antitrust cases. So I don't think it's an accident that it was filed in Northern California. And whether that also applies to the injunctive relief they're seeking is another matter because you really do have to distinguish between the two cases here. There are three players who are seeking an injunction to allow them to compete in the FedEx Cup playoffs starting next week. And then all 11 
have signed on to the antitrust case, which these, these are notoriously complex cases. You know, there was the famous one of the NFL going up against the US FL back in the 1980s. And even if the PGA Tour were to be found liable for antitrust violations, it's not particularly clear what harm has been done to uh, the, this upstart rival tour mm. in, in terms of live golf. So the, the actual case on its merits is a lot tougher to prove than it is to grant an injunction because we've seen it even recently with the Russian figure skater in the Olympics. And again, that was a, a private panel rather than a, a, in a public courtroom, but judges tend to lean towards the idea of let them play while we litigate. Yeah. And that was a clear with the Russian figure skater with the drug testing allegations during the Olympics. It may well be the case here. It was certainly the case of what we saw at the Genesis Scottish Open when four players got in. So the field went from 156 to 160. So we may well see, instead of 125 players next week in Memphis, we may see 128, three of whom probably shouldn't expect a particularly mm. warm welcome. I think about Maurice Claret back at Ohio State uh, in his lawsuit. Uh, my, my question to you also is, uh, you don't <coughs> know what's going to happen. None of us does. It's hard to predict what will happen. But do you sense from your reporting that Live Golf has been spoiling for this fight, that they knew this day would come and had prepared for this day? As have the PGA Tour mm. and the DP World Tour as well. I think they've all assumed that everything to this point was theater, that it was ultimately going to be resolved in a court of law, and that's the direction we're headed. And our antitrust cases are also not resolved overnight. Injunctions can be, but the antitrust case itself could labor on for a period of several years before uh, any kind of relief is granted to one side or another. In the USFL-NFL case, the USFL was actually out of business mm. by the time it was actually adjudicated. The damages check that they were awarded uh, basically was never cashed famously because there was no one there to cash the check. And that won't be the case here, but we shouldn't expect uh, a resolution anytime soon. But I do think Will Zalatoris and Billy Horschel kind of hit on the point there that these guys want to take the, the check and then cherry pick events that they would continue to play on the PGA Tour simply to keep their world ranking up and be relevant. And in that case, you could argue that Live Golf mm. is a parasite on the PGA Tour. And the PGA Tour will mount all of these arguments that they have not attempted to keep these guys from entering the marketplace. They will argue that there is confusion in the marketplace if guys are allowed to play both tours. Right. They would argue that players who've been built up as assets on the PGA Tour over the years are potentially susceptible to being overworked or injured playing on the Live Golf Tour. So there are any number of defences that the PGA Tour can and probably will mount during the antitrust part of this litigation. The, the injunctive relief part of it will be an interesting one as well because the tour can argue that there is no emergency that requires uh, an injunction that these guys could have filed uh, quite some time ago when they knew they were suspended and that they're, not they're violating regulations that they had signed up to and agreed Originally. to. And Right. The tour seems pretty confident the idea that their regulations are sound and that their enforcement of their regulations is sound. These players will argue differently. And again, it comes down to the judge more so than the district that it's been fought in in that mm. respect. You predicted this story would shadow the major championships, shadow the summer, and it has. What surprised you, if anything, in this year? I'm surprised only by how quickly it accelerated during major championship season on the men's side. And I thought you'd see more activity in this area with more guys jumping after the Open Championship, perhaps even after the FedEx Cup playoffs. And I'm only surprised by the speed at which it started to happen early. Mm. And then it almost becomes self-fulfilling because guys develop this fear that they're missing out on the money and that the money might not be there if, if they wait. That's why Henrik Stenson decided to jump even having signed a contract with the Ryder Cup Europe group that he would not be doing so mm. because Henrik Stenson was afraid that the money wouldn't be there whenever it was his turn a couple of years down the road when the Ryder Cup is over. So I'm only surprised in that it's accelerated through the most important part of the season. But 
you know, it's a story that's not going to go anywhere. We, it, it's still going to be an issue through major championship season next year and beyond. How much does Jay Monaghan need his lieutenants now? Rory McIlroy, John Rahm, Justin Thomas, Tiger Woods in this development? Um, not or does at all. it not what matter he, what now? What he needs now is good lawyers. Mm. And presumably, you know, one person that I talked to at the tours quite some time ago told me that they had a couple of office buildings worth of lawyers in New York mm. City who were quite confident in the tourist position in this. And we've seen that the tours already started lobbying in Washington as well, because there's now become much more of a political element, particularly in the last week and what we saw going on last week at Trump Bedminster. There is a very nakedly political aspect to this mm -hmm. as well that wasn't really there or wasn't there apparent before. So look, the, the PR argument in a way has been fought mm. over this one now. And Jay Monaghan had his surrogates doing that in Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods and, and Justin Thomas and those guys. But now this moves into the guys who've got billable hours. Yeah. These are fraught times in professional golf, maybe more fraught than we could have even imagined several months ago. Much more on this breaking story when we return this lawsuit against the PGA Tour. We are back right after this. We have some breaking news to tell you about regarding the PGA Tour. According to the Wall Street Journal, Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau, and nine other live golf players have filed an antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour. The suit challenges the suspensions the PGA Tour has already implemented, not allowing the live golfers to play in PGA Tour events, as well as the FedEx Cup playoffs. We're joined now by Jody Balsam, Professor of Clinical Law, Director of Externship Programs at Brooklyn Law School. Jody, uh, this is obviously something that is going to be unique compared to other antitrust lawsuits, but what stands out to you about this specific case? Well, in this case, you have claims that an existing sports entity is taking measures to prevent competition by an upstart rival tour here, Live Golf. And the claims on at face value seem somewhat valid. PGA Tour is limiting Live Golf's access to its most important input, which is the PGA Tour level players, the elite golfers, who are having to make a Hobson's choice. Do they stay with the PGA Tour or take the cash and play with Live Golf? And Live Golf's position is that they can do both, and the PGA Tour obviously doesn't want them to. Jody, there's two distinct aspects to this case. Now, we have three golfers seeking injunctive relief to be allowed to play the FedEx Cup playoffs next week, and then 11 in total who are suing as part of the antitrust case. Let's deal with the seeking of the injunction. What are the key considerations for those players to justify getting that injunction for next week? Right. So what they are now trying to do in federal court in the Northern District of California is play in the FedEx Cup tournaments that are upcoming, right? They don't want and don't expect to get a final resolution of their antitrust claims, but they want the courts who, at least pending the litigation of those claims, prevent the PGA Tour from keeping them off the golf course. And the standard that the court will apply asks a couple of important questions. First, the likelihood of success on the merits of the players' claims. How strong are those claims? Are those meritorious claims? And second, even if they are meritorious, can they be remedied by monetary damages at the end of a lengthy litigation? Or are the harms the players are confronting right now so irreparable that there needs to be temporary injunctive relief stopping the PGA Tour from keeping them off the golf course. Professor, is there any comparison in this case to maybe a, a case in the past? For example, Maurice Claret, you know, in 2003, suing the NFL, he wanted to turn professional, uh, you know, less than the three years out of high school. He was two years out of high school. Does this PGA Tour case you know, have any kind of similar characteristics to something we might have seen in the sports world years ago? Well, you're talking about two cases which are similar in that they both concern eligibility rules to participate in athletic contests and professional sports. Where they differ is that Maurice Claret was suing in a unionized environment. And because the professional team sports in the United States 
work, their workforce, the players, are unionized, they are entitled to what is known as an antitrust exemption. There is an exemption for unionized workplaces from antitrust challenge for precisely these types of complaints about eligibility rules. That's not the case with the PGA Tour. PGA Tour golfers are independent contractors. They are not employees who can even attempt to unionize, at least not at this point. Jody, obviously the, the longer-term antitrust lawsuit that's been filed here, that's a much more complex situation than the, the injunctive relief being sought. How do you see that one playing out in terms of the arguments that either side is likely to make before the judge? Well, antitrust scrutiny asks in the first instance, does the alleged bad actor have market power? You need to define a marketplace in which they operate, as well as the competing firms operate, and then identify whether they have power to manipulate that market, to prevent others from entering or succeeding in that market. And the PGA Tour's response here is that if and when we ever have had market power, we certainly don't against the deep pockets of Live Golf, backed by the Saudi government, that whatever market power we might possess in an ordinary uh, professional golf setting, we don't when we're up against unlimited funds to outpay us vis-a-vis -vis our players. Jody, this story has dominated the summer, and now we have a new step, this lawsuit. Typically, how long would it take for a case like this to even be adjudicated? Years. And I'll give you as an example the Alston case that recently reached the Supreme Court after six, seven years of litigation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and by the way, I mention that case because it originated in the Northern District of California and can partially explain why uh, the Live Golf players decided to bring their lawsuit there. That court has been sympathetic to claims like these in the past and uh, gave victories to the student-athletes in the Alston antitrust litigation at every step of the way. Jody, how do you think the injunction part of this legal action is likely to play out? And I know it, a lot of it depends as much on the whims of the judge that is drawn for this case as anything else, but when you look at the likelihood of these players being able to force their way legally into the field next week, what is that likelihood? And are they the only three who could make their way into the field because they are the only three who are associated with the injunction request? Or if they succeed, does that open the gates for other players who are eligible next week as well? Well, you packed a lot into that question. Let me just start with the likelihood of them winning injunctive relief. We have the uh, example of the Scottish Tribunal a couple of weeks ago who awarded similar injunctive relief. The question there is that these athletes have um, short-lived careers. Some of them, they, they rely not just on the um, compensation that they earn from playing in golf tournaments, if they even um, perform well enough to justify prize money, but um, for the rankings, the glory, there's an argument for irreparable harm here, that if they are not allowed to play, monetary damages would not put them in the same place as they are entitled to be should their antitrust suit succeed on the merits. So um, there, I, I would say that given the ruling of the Scottish Tribunal a few weeks ago and the fact that we're in this particular location in the Northern District of California, they have a pretty good shot at injunctive relief, temporary injunctive relief to allow the litigation to take its course without impairing their viability as professional athletes. Um, however, that applies only to those players who actually sought the injunctions, right? So players who have not brought a case and made their um, arguments to this court would not automatically be entitled to that kind of relief. However, it would be likely that any award of that kind of relief to any number of players would set the stage for some sort of negotiation with the PGA Tour to accommodate Live Golf pending this litigation. Jody, this is an extremely complex story. Thank you so much for your time and unfolding some of the layers for us on this Wednesday. Happy to be here. Jody Boston with Brooklyn Law School. What you make of what she had to say? This could take years and years to ultimately solve. Yeah, I mean, Jody's one of the smartest people I know, and I've spent a lot of evenings discussing this case with her. And, and it's, 
it's amazing for however many arguments that make sense in terms of what Liv could mount in its role as plaintiff, that there are an equal number of reasonable, valid defences that the PGA Tour mount, will mount as a defendant mm. in this case. And it's, it's easy to get suckered into focusing on what the actual injunction aspect of this case will involve. Those guys have a decent chance of getting ultimately into the field. What that, to Jody's point, what that means in terms of the PGA Tour then having to accommodate other players in other respects, because obviously they're seeking an injunctive relief to get into the FedEx Cup playoffs. That's three events. Right. And they may not even actually be in all three, in, in all three of those right. events. But to what extent then the PGA Tour might be obligated to figure out how to accommodate guys who have eligibility into other PGA Tour events going forward next year. I mean, you have a guy like Phil Mickelson. He's got a lifetime exemption right. on the PGA Tour. Other guys have earned. Yep, Dustin Johnson does as well. Yeah, although Dustin Johnson has resigned his PGA yes. Tour membership, so he, he's no longer a factor in any of this legal action. But the, the guys who have eligibility also have eligibility for, for next season and to play specific events and major championships. So it's really what dominoes fall after that in terms of what accommodations have to be made if they are successful in getting that injunction. But the tour will have many arguments to state that the injunction is valid, that the regulations these guys signed up to were known and they were enforced, they are reasonable, and these guys chose to violate it and then wait until the last minute hoping to have an emergency injunction when there is no emergency. There's no emergency, but there is precedent. Ian Poulter, yep. the Scottish Open. How much do you think that could possibly weigh in whether or not we see a Taylor Gooch in the FedEx Cup playoffs? Yeah, I'm not at all clear on what precedent a Scottish tribunal sets versus the Northern District of California mm. in, in a different jurisdiction and a different legal system. But it, it's very clear that a lot of lawyers are going to be making a lot of money over this. And a lot of goodwill has now gone out the window. We saw that in Kira's report from yeah. Greensboro, is that it's now, the players are looking at it thinking, this is my money they are coming to take. We were happy if you wanted to go take Liv money but and go, that tour. Stay. But now you're coming back. And that's what Liv has to do, whether it's the world rankings, the majors, or cherry-picking PGA Tour events, it has to be a parasitic force on the other institutions that already exist within golf. And that could be a true argument that the live golf guys are trying to build a business on the back yeah. of their business and their success. So it's not necessarily a competitor, potentially a parasite. That's also an argument they would make. There was a quiet hope in some circles that potentially there could be some collaboration between these two rival entities. That that's ship great, has sailed. That's a great notion that has been blown out of the water here, yeah. the idea that the Saudis ever intended to coexist. When the European tour put them on the schedule in 2019, yeah. they were already working with Rain Capital to undermine the European tour. They're not interested in coexisting. They're interested in owning. Mm. Much more on this evolving story, this breaking news on this Wednesday, this antitrust lawsuit filed by 11 Live Golf players against the PGA Tour.